0: You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way.
1: Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Julia. I'm Kate. And I'm Ida. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Justin Adams, co-director for Nature-Based Solutions at the World Economic Forum and executive director of the Tropical Forest Alliance. Justin has spent 25 years championing innovation and sustainability in both the private and public sectors to address the climate challenge. For the last decade, he has focused on accelerating nature-based solutions to create rural jobs, reverse biodiversity loss, and climate breakdown. He joined the World Economic Forum at the end of 2018 to lead the Tropical Forest Alliance, which is the leading public-private partnership focused on reducing commodity-driven deforestation. He launched the Trillion Trees platform, 1t.org at Davos 2020 to build a global movement for ecosystem restoration and is also now exploring how to unlock carbon finance to accelerate nature-based solutions deployment. I met Justin when I worked at the Nature Conservancy and I'm so excited to welcome him to the podcast today. Welcome Justin.
2: Thanks, Julia. Great to be with all three of you. I'm delighted you're doing this series.
0: Justin, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey and how you started your career and where your interest in the environment came from. And I wanted to flag that in the first half of your career, you focused a little bit more on opportunities in cleantech. You led venture investments at BP into cleantech, and you actually even ran a lithium-ion company, I noticed, long before EVs were as buzzy as they were now. But then you shifted focus towards land use and agriculture and the forest related levers uh, in your roles leading the Biocarbon Fund and the World Bank and also in your role at the Nature Conservancy. And we're really curious, like what sort of motivated this
2: switch? Hmm. So my journey has been one that has constantly been about bridging different communities and different worlds. I grew up with a very entrepreneurial father, so I've always had sort of a, a a belief that business and innovation can actually do good can unlock solutions. Um, and uh, studied business as an undergraduate and went into the world of business, but also at the same time, I spent a lot of time in the outdoors, climbing mountains, and uh, and had a deep and uh, uh, and long lasting love for for the natural world, and so. It was clear back in the early 90s that that, that we were degrading the environment then. We had the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, which left a mark for me and many, many others. Uh, And that probably marked the the beginning of my interest in sustainability. So how could business actually make a difference and help uh, build a a, a different type of future? And that really has been at the core of what's driven me uh, ever since. And uh, so I started working on climate uh, in the mid-90s, and like everybody at that stage was working on the energy transition, renewables and batteries. And so I spent 15 years working on some of those solutions and had some great opportunities working in Silicon Valley when the first cleantech wave came, Um, but also uh, had joined BP was was leading a key part of BP's alternative energy business, looking at scaling some of these solutions. And as part of that, I ran uh, a group focused on carbon capture and storage, but more broadly looking at carbon solutions. And that really began my deep interest in the potential of forests and the potential of ecosystems as a critical part of the carbon cycle that was massively underinvested in. Uh, And the more I tugged on that thread, the more... Interested I became, and the more it became apparent that this was a sector the world wasn't paying sufficient attention to. And as soon as you start looking at it, you become embroiled in the complexity of farmers and how we produce our food, how we produce our timber and other fibers, and how we think about land use overall and our relationship to land. There was lots happening in the energy world. There was lots and lots of momentum, uh, but it really felt that this was a neglected area that I I certainly had a passion to, uh, to step into more. And that's really been my journey since the late 2000s and certainly through all of the 2010s where I've put all of my attention and effort is to how do we unlock the potential that nature has to be a much bigger part of the climate story. So that's at the highest level, that's been my uh, my journey and why I shifted into uh, the world of nature and natural climate solutions.
0: And uh, you've worked in really a wide range of environments, sort of in an NGO context like TNC, but you've also worked in these more corporate and commercial environments. And so Uh, I wanted to ask for people interested in pursuing natural climate solutions professionally, how would you advise them to think about working either at a major NGO or in a more commercial context like a startup or a big corporate or commercial investment manager? And can you talk a little bit about sort of what you can do in NGOs that you can't do at commercial institutions or or vice versa? Hmm.
2: I would say, yeah, this is a sector and it's not an easy to define sector and we can get into that a little bit, but I would say anybody that is interested You know, follow your heart, follow your passion. uh, And there is so much opportunity starting to open up in all of those areas you talked about, whether you're in the world of finance and looking at asset uh, uh, and portfolio management, whether you uh, are in corporates, whether you are in an NGO, whether you're in a startup, whether you're in academia. Uh, we need everybody leaning in, and, and that's everybody in those sectors. But also, this has got to be a global movement. So much of the opportunity sits in the global south, and yet too often our climate discussions, our environment discussions have been dominated by, by the global north. So this is really a way that we, uh, that we need to connect everybody into to this. And there's opportunity for each and every individual to get involved.
1: Absolutely. And you know we're excited to dig into some of these questions around the landscape of different players. Um, and you know, one of the major sort of areas within that are these international forums and bodies that, that you're really involved in. So the Tropical Forest Alliance, 1T.org. Could you give us the sort of one minute breakdown of each of those um, areas? Um, and then any other that you're working on that you'd wanna highlight um, and, and then helping us to paint the map of these different players and the complementary roles that they play.
2: So the first is to sort of highlight that, that actually for any of this work to make a difference, it's the local action. It's the on the ground action that's so important. So how we funnel more resources to, uh, to farmers, to foresters, to environmental organizations actually deploying solutions on the ground is key. So you have that local action. But you know, I spend a lot of time on the ground working with those communities and those actors. But actually, most of my work and where I've been able to deploy my skill set has been in actually helping shape the global. Agenda. And so for the last couple of years, that's been with the World Economic Forum, uh, which is a fantastic convener of governments, of business, of civil society, and bringing all of those partners together to look at where those solutions are. So that's where my focus is. uh, But I'm not for a minute suggesting that that is. That is how we make the most important work happen, which is the work on the ground. The platforms that we are building is Tropical Forest Alliance is working with on commodity-driven deforestation, so palm oil, soybeans, cattle. Uh, so much of the deforestation and ecosystem con- loss that we are seeing is coming from the expansion of agriculture. So we work with governments and business and civil society to look at the solutions of how we can stop so much forest loss. Um, Nature Net Zero and our work with the Natural Climate Solutions Alliance is much more focused on how we can unlock carbon as one enabler. And I hope that's something we come back to. Everybody's getting all excited about the carbon market and the carbon opportunity. It is a key part of of how we could actually unlock scale, but it's only one part. And it's also got a lot of complexity associated with it. And then the Trillion Trees platform that we launched was, was really about restoration and how we as the World Economic Forum could support the UN decade which kicks off this year. The launch will be on the 5th of June led by uh, UNEP from Nairobi and the FAO, the UN's uh, Food and Agriculture Organization but that's really looking at how we can drive ecosystem restoration and how we could be the first generation that starts to reverse environmental decline each and every generation in the last 10,000 years since we first tilled the soil in Mesopotamia has degraded the environment uh, through our agricultural practice, urbanization, and, and, and then more recently, the rampant consumerism. Ecosystem restoration has the opportunity for us to shift our relationship with nature. And so it's a really exciting agenda. Again, it's not a panacea, but it brings a positive dimension to so much of this work, which is too often mired in negativity Uh, and complexity.
1: That's a great point, Justin. And I know there are so many different angles that come into this issue. You know, you mentioned restoration, uh, carbon as another angle, but that's only one part of how we unlock scale in nature's or natural climate solutions. But can you talk through how these different organizations that you mentioned, are they separate? Are they connected? Are the same people involved in these different agendas and uh, who is involved in which aspect?
2: so the the short answer is there's a lot of complexity and so all of these agendas overlap they all interconnect uh, and so you know inevitably we try to split that down and find a simple solution and everybody's always searching for the silver bullet the bad news is there is no silver bullet the good news is uh, as i said before you know, there are lots of different opportunities and lots of ways into this discussion. Uh, and so for us to be successful at, a, at the highest level, we've got to stop the degradation and destruction uh, of nature. Uh, and then we've got to shift how we manage our lands, our waters around the world and, uh, and how they can actually be, how we can produce food and produce other materials in a way that isn't so destructive. And then, how can thirdly, how can we actually start to restore uh, the the ecosystems that we rely on for so much of uh, of, of what we take for granted, which is the, the life uh, on Earth? And that's 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 at the highest level, kind of how we need to think about this as a problem. Carbon and the carbon markets is is a really nice um, currency to, uh, of of how we can. Drive some of that transition, if we can get incentives to farmers and to landowners and uh, to communities to shift some of those practices, to manage their lands in different ways, to restore their lands, that can be one way of encouraging a shift from some of those stakeholders. Um, But it is not ever going to be sufficient. We've got to stop the subsidies that, that currently drive agriculture in one direction towards big monocultures and towards a, a subsidy for production as opposed to a supporting environmentally uh, friendly and climate friendly practices. So we've got to shift how that's financed. We've got to sort of become much more aware with financial decision making and procurement decision making from the big financial institutions and the big corporates of the footprint that their decisions have on the natural world. And right now we are not good at being able to sort of pass apart what is the environmental footprint of so many of these decisions that we are making. Um, So that starts to get to some of the question of of what we need to make a shift.
0: Well, I actually did want to dig a little bit into sort of the dynamic that you were just describing around this tension between conservation and farmers and food systems and And one thing we talked about previously is that one of the great sort of challenges, but also opportunities of the movement around climate is the opportunity to put people at the center of it and to create a just transition. And that sometimes makes the questions like, how do you define a just transition? And and so we wanted to ask you, just building off what you just said, what is the opportunity for natural climate solutions to enable a just transition? And are there particular examples that you could flag from your own experience where, where this is done well?
2: At the most basic level, unless we put people at the center of this, we are never going to achieve the potential of natural climate solutions. Uh, But a lot of the thinking, a lot of the work has come from the environment community that's done fabulous uh, and really important work to try and protect uh, our natural environment over the last five, six decades And often that's been about keeping people out of landscapes or out of seascapes so that those environments are not degraded. And so we've got this paradox that we've got to deal with, that this has got to be about actually putting people at the center of this, because there's 500 million farmers there or thereabouts on the planet today. Right. Those farmers and the millions of foresters that we have have. are the ones with the really big land footprint. And if we're not finding a way of incentivizing them to do the right thing, we will fail. And and incentivizing them to do the right thing, we've got to recognize that often farmers are the ones at the forefront of environmental change, of climate change, Uh, And so they've got to adjust and very often, particularly in the global south and many of the developing nations, those farmers have nothing and they may just be thinking about how they can get food on the table or send a kid to college uh, versus thinking about solving a global challenge and global issue like climate change. So thinking about how we make these transitions work for those farmers uh, and those landowners is at the center and at the crux of of how we're actually going to be successful here. And so thinking that carbon alone is the panacea that's going to unlock that, that's where we've also got to be, we've got to be a little bit more sophisticated in doing it. So carbon, great. It's one way of creating an incentive, but what about the products that those farmers are producing? How do we ensure those farmers are incentivized to produce their product and the environmental services that we want to deliver? So I think we've got to start thinking about how we stack multiple benefits coming off the land and how we're incentivizing farmers, landowners uh, in a much more joined up fashion. That's also gonna require that decision makers, particularly governments, start to take an integrated view of how we use land. So we've got to figure out how we're gonna produce the food that's gonna feed nine or 10 billion people. How are we gonna clothe people, given most of our clothing comes from natural fibers, wool and cotton and, uh, and leather and the like. Uh, We've got to figure out how we're going to provide energy for people. In certain parts of the world, 80% of the energy in sub-Saharan Africa still comes from wood fuel and charcoal. So how do we balance those needs, those economic needs of a growing population with the recognition that biodiversity is in steep decline and that uh, we need our forests our mangroves our seagrasses and other key ecosystems to actually both store the carbon that we've got and if we can res- and, and if we can restore some of those ecosystems to draw down more carbon from the atmosphere so that's suddenly a complex optimization challenge and, and yet, we're still out there looking for simple solutions and simple ideas that are going to help us deal with this complexity. And inherent within the complexity is our ability to manage trade-offs.
3: I'd love to get your thoughts on the the role of indigenous people, in particular, given that you know about a third of the remaining intact forests is, is held by indigenous people. And so, what are the impacts of some of these? De- deforestation or anti-deforestation strategies on local people? How can they be more involved? um, And who are the watchdogs and advocates who should be involved in the process?
2: Well, the most important thing when we talk about Indigenous people is to recognize that they have been largely without a voice for centuries since colonialization has pushed back First Nations into more and more remote parts of many of the lands that we see now around the world. And so giving them voice and helping them make the choices for themselves around how they want to manage where they still have sovereignty, uh, where they still have uh, rights and tenure over the land, that's, I think, the most important thing that we need to to think about. As you say, Indigenous people do have rights, or at least on paper they have rights, uh, to lots of the remaining biodiversity and carbon stores on the planet. So finding ways of supporting them to shepherd and steward those resources, you know, is absolutely is absolutely critical. And many organizations do that and do that well. I think the other thing to say and to recognize is the wisdom that Indigenous people still have because they often still live so close to the earth to actually understand that, that as humans, we need to find a way of living in balance with our local environment. And now as a global species, to live in balance with our global environment. That knowledge, that wisdom, uh, is a wonderful complement to Western science Uh, in terms of how we can find solutions to these critical crises that we're facing. And every time I've had the honor to spend time uh, with indigenous groups, the learning that comes from that uh, and the wisdom from these peoples is extraordinary. Um, And it's deeply humbling. Um, So how we give them voice, how we can support their choices, I think is really key to this. But again, they are one key constituent. They're certainly a key constituent where we're thinking about intact habitats. Um, but they alone, working on the indigenous issue, is not the way that we're going to solve the broader issues around food security and, and land management uh, overall. And so it's a, it's an, it's another and.
1: Yeah, I, I wanted to quickly follow up on that, Justin. It sounds so powerful, right? How do we combine Indigenous knowledge with Western science. And and I also wanted to ask if you could share some of the learning that you've had in speaking with Indigenous groups and an example maybe of where that Indigenous knowledge is being incorporated into actual strategies on the ground.
2: I think some of the best examples are actually with the Maori from, um, or the Iwi from from New Zealand. Um, Still a, a, a pretty significant part of the population, 15% of the population, I think, is Maori or Maori heritage. Um, and Maori words are incorporated into everyday language within uh, within New Zealand. So they are interspersed with English and it's a recognized national language. There's still enormous problems and enormous challenges between the, the, the European uh, colonizers and the native indigenous peoples, but there's a much more visible culture throughout New Zealand that really a very deep impression on me. And, and one of the wonderful things that you see there is as they have, have starting to get more rights and, and going back to treaties that were signed and ensuring those treaties to follow through with, they have started to work on things like giving legal rights to a river. Um, the Fanganui River or to a mountain range, the Viranaki Mountain Range. In Western minds, it's a river or it's a mountain. Uh, But in Maori culture, these are living beings and suddenly they've now got legal rights. So with legal rights, they now are looking at what are the rights of the river and how can that river, all of the desecration that's happened with the river and the pollution that's happened, how can some of that be reversed? Uh, to uh, actually find a more balanced way of being in the 21st century. So there's a wonderful, it's a wonderful example for me of actually where and how um, indigenous knowledge and in an indigenous worldview is being woven together with the Western uh, worldview that's there. I also spent time out on a restoration project and just seeing the kind of care and tenderness of which they were growing native trees and seedlings of native trees in this, this wonderful nursery that were then being used to actually drive a big part of New Zealand's uh, uh, restoration program. So that's one example. There's many other examples that I could touch on. I, I haven't once returned from, from one of those trips unchanged.
3: Uh, I want to switch gears just a bit. I'm particularly interested in how to conserve and restore forests in countries or regions that are characterized by conflict and fragility, um, so much more more complex complex environments. And you know, I know a lot of your work is around stakeholder engagement and bringing together private sector, NGOs, government. Um, but are there preconditions for this sort of stakeholder engagement? Do you need strong government partners, strong governance, physical security, things like that, to even begin to be effective?
2: I, I think it's a great question, Kate. And there's actually a couple of really nice examples um, of post-conflict restoration that I think would be worth digging into. But, but I guess that the fundamental point is that dialogue is a precursor to progress. And one of the things that worries me about where we are with natural climate solutions and the broader environment movement overall is that, and I think social media is exacerbating this. We live in a world where everybody is convinced of their rightness. Uh, And so we're getting louder and louder voices as the urgency of the problem becomes ever clearer that the environment movement knows exactly what the right thing to do is. And we have to stop all deforestation today. And and that's neglecting often the needs of the of farmers or rural communities that are actually just thinking about how they can ensure they've got economic opportunities to develop, to educate themselves or to feed themselves in many instances. And so that you get this sort of standoff between rural agricultural communities and, and the environment community. And the only way we find a path through that is through dialogue. Similarly with the the timber wars we've had in the past, you know, we've made the environment movement and the timber uh, industry, both critical constituents, if we're going to solve natural climate solutions at scale, and yet all too often, sometimes I'm in rooms and you can't even get the people to sit around the table, right? So, to, and certainly where I'm coming from is dialogue is the only way we're going to solve this because there's so many different points of view. There's so many different perspectives. So that dialogue is, is crucial. The, the challenge is dialogue takes time. Um, and uh, certainly to have deep dialogue and to really ensure you're listening to each other, that really takes some time. And yet here we are knowing the urgency of the, the challenge, whether it's climate or biodiversity loss. And some people saying we've got 10 years to, to act and to change everything around. So how can we actually both you know, engage meaningfully, have dialogue, make progress, but, but recognize there is still an urgency to the challenge as well. And I, I think In post-conflict situations, I can't talk to so much to where there is ongoing conflict, but in post-conflict situations where there's peace discussions and where the different parties are sitting around the table looking at reconciliation, the opportunity to actually bring the environment to this and to restoration to some of this is, I think, very real. I was in a discussion uh, just a couple of days ago about Sudan, you know, one of the largest countries in Africa, four civil wars in the last 20 years, and yet an incredibly productive and fertile area of land, as well as the threat of growing encroachment from the Sahara. Uh, and uh, so they, they also straddled this belt of land called the Sahel, which is you know this arid, semi-arid land between the Sahara and the lush forests of the tropical western Central Africa belt. And so in that Sahel region, conflict is rife. Uh, But actually, by getting people to plant trees and to make sure they're the right trees in the right place, uh, that that can actually start to regreen some of that land. And if the trees can then start to mature, they can start to create little microclimates. So suddenly there's more rainfall and suddenly there's more food production. And so some of the reasons that the conflict is there, start to ebb away when you've got a re-greening uh, movement that can be there. And there's wonderful examples of that across in Niger um, and Burkina Faso and some of the other uh, countries in the Sahel. Uh, and the African Union has this fabulous project called the, uh, the Great Green Wall of Africa, which is about planting or to be re-greening that whole belt from Senegal and the Atlantic all the way across Uh, to Ethiopia and Djibouti on the Red Sea uh, and to bring restoration into that. So, yes, there'll be climate benefits of doing that, but mostly there's going to be human benefits. Again, this is putting communities at the center of that and that then brings security benefits. uh, And that's that's one of the things that really gives me hope about if we can unlock some of this opportunity, if we can get more corporates to engage and invest there and bring the capability and capacity to support the communities, if we can get governments to align behind some of that, like this example in Sudan I was just giving, that is one of the things that, that for me is where hope lies uh, in terms of how our work can really make a difference in the, uh, in this, the years and decades ahead.
3: I'd actually love to dig in a bit more into the, the Great Green Wall, and I, I noticed this was one of the initiatives that the One Trillion Trees platform is, is also supporting, and so would would love to just hear what does that actually look like. My impression of the project is that it's obviously highly ambitious and maybe hasn't achieved all the goals that have been set out along the way. So curious what's being done, what are the missing pieces, um, and uh, maybe in particular, what's the role of corporate support?
2: That's a great question. And so we set this Trillion Trees platform up to really be a, a servant organization to lots of the great initiatives that are out there. And so, as I said, the Great Green Wall is an Africa Union program. It's got lots of uh, agencies and donors and already involved. And the question that we were asked as the World Economic Forum is how can you come in and support Uh, and drive more progress into a great visionary project, but a highly ambitious project, as you said, that the Great Green Wall is. And so a number of the areas that we then look at is, well, where and how could corporates play? Where and how can innovation play uh, into this? And how can our convening capacity to support what is already happening? And so Uh, We have got a group of companies and group of investors and a group of other civil society actors together with governments sitting around the table looking at exactly that question. And one of the one of the critical things that we're asked is how could corporates help create supply chains? Because if uh, communities are planting trees that are producing nuts or fruits that then need a market, so shea butter, you know, a wonderful cosmetic product that is native and indigenous to that region of Africa. How can we actually help create more supply chains that would provide an economic incentive for those or an economic offtake for those types of trees? So that's the type of opportunity that's there. We've also just launched this wonderful platform called Uplink, which is a digital platform to connect innovators. It has more than 14,000 active users who put forward their ideas around specific challenges. And so we've recently launched, in fact, it's live now, an Uplink challenge for the Great Green Wall. And that's starting to bring together wonderful innovators and entrepreneurs from these countries as well as innovators and entrepreneurs from other um, parts of the world with technology uh, but with ideas that could really unlock the scale that, that we need to, to bring restoration to life and to un- unlock some of the challenges uh, that the projects had to date in terms of how does it get to scale how does it get beyond sort of just the sort of the classic donor funded projects into one that communities are driving and perpetuating themselves. So that's the type of thing that that we are doing, bringing corporates into this, looking at how we can help uh, with value chain creation, bringing innovators and ecopreneurs into this. Uh, and then I think using our media and communications platforms to actually be able to talk about what an extraordinarily important project this is for the for the entire world.
0: I think there's so much power in like initial projects sort are of proving this out and, and that sort of creating a bit of a, a tipping point in in, in communicating and in aligning stakeholders around the, the opportunity here. Um, we did want to ask, there's a lot of debate around the importance of conservation versus restoration versus planting new trees. And where do you come down in this debate? And, and where do you think we should focus the most in this next decade? Huh.
2: <laughs> it's a great question. And there's all sorts of articles. Again, everybody's screaming and everybody with a perspective of what's right. And the answer is, yeah, the answer is we need it all. And each has got its place. And you know, and, and and it's absolutely true that we cannot just focus all of the attention and this you know, huge upswing in interest that we're seeing from corporates to get involved in natural climate solutions, but, but restoration efforts and growing trees more broadly. We can't have everybody get behind that and then not address the issue of how can we conserve and protect our remaining intact ecosystems. The answer is we need both. And different actors have got different roles to play in driving uh, some of those solutions. So for a lot of corporates, it's much harder to see how can they invest to protect particular forests or particular ecosystems, it's far easier for them to see their agency and their opportunity to invest in a project. So I work a lot with supply chain companies like Unilever, Nestle, PepsiCo, um, L'Oreal, etc., that have big sourcing needs of agricultural products from all around the world. They spent the last decade looking at and trying to understand some of the risk that sits in their supply chains. Uh, and the accusations that they're driving deforestation. So there's been real progress in how they can understand what is occurring in and around the supply chain, how they use satellite monitoring to measure that risk. But increasingly, they're also interested in saying, well, this isn't just a risk management situation. We've got an opportunity. These are critical sourcing landscapes for us. We recognize there's complexity in these landscapes, but what can we do to actually be embarking on a bigger restoration play that's working with communities, creating rural jobs, restoring critical ecosystem function. And they're usually guided by NGOs who've got wonderful knowledge of how uh, to link uh, up uh, particular hydrological flows or different biodiversity corridors, all informed by communication and engagement with local communities. Uh, and suddenly we're moving into that optimization of what's occurring in a landscape and bringing a more integrated perspective. It's all still you know, embryonic. It's still early. But, but to me, that, again, points to the type of opportunity that we're going to see much more of and we need much more of uh, in the future. Uh, and so it's both and.
1: With these corporate pledges, platforms, everything else, what, what's missing? What's not happening that needs to be? Like, who isn't stepping up that should be? And specifically in these corporate pledges, because you spoke a lot to how these corporates are mobilizing, what's missing in these corporate pledges that, that we're not seeing that we should?
2: Another great question. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to start just by, by saying you know, one of the things that's missing, and it's missing overall, is sufficient hope and optimism, right? Because it's, you know, every project, initiative, organization I've been involved where with, with where there's hope and there's a vision and there's a future, right? It's extraordinary what human ingenuity and human endeavor can unlock uh, where you've got that optimism driving. Uh, to some solutions. So part of my role and part of what I really want to sort of impress uh, is that that we can make a difference and there is a much brighter future that's possible. And so lots of the examples I'm giving you are examples that inspire hope and actually enable us to mobilize more stakeholders to get involved uh, in this. I could also come on and I'm sure you're going to have other speakers on your series that they're going to come on and say, "Yeah, we are facing an emergency." And yeah, you can come up with statistics that make you cry because of the amount of forest loss we're seeing and the degradation of our fisheries and all of the environmental metrics and measures are, are, are bad right so but my problem with that is that that's not how we're going to engage and, and motivate more people to get behind this so the first thing that's missing and the reason i come at this through the way i do is is because i really believe that hope is is the most precious uh, commodity we've got alongside trust Uh, between actors to make things happen. So that's what we're working to build. In terms of very specifics of what's missing, I'd say the finance sector is probably the biggest gap uh, right now, along with having a, a more integrated vision for this agenda in multiple governments around the world and how that this isn't seen as a sort of anti-development agenda, but how this can genuinely be seen as an agenda that can bring together rural development, uh, economic opportunity and trade and environmental protection. That's still what we've really got to be able to work to sort of demonstrate and pull together and I can give you an example of actually what the UK government's working towards with COP26 that points us in that direction. So that's that's still a missing, but more and more governments are getting it. The dialogue is shifting, but the biggest gap is the finance sector. And the finance sector, yeah, I think largely because it's been blind, right? That The money just follows money. And so we've had a growing recognition in the last decade um, probably accelerating just in the last few years, prompted by things like the Task Force for Financial Disclosure, that is driving a much greater questioning of asset managers and investors and banks of what's in their portfolios, what are they lending against? That's grown for fossil fuels and fossil energy. That has not grown in anything like the same way yet in terms of deforestation and environmental degradation. And I think there are some leading investors starting to ask these questions, starting to look at how they can get involved. But I think that becomes a real uh, tipping point over the next few years. And that's an area we're spending a lot more time thinking about. In terms of what's missing from the corporate pledges or corporate action themselves, I think one of the most important things is just full transparency and reporting. Despite the progress that's been made, it's stunning that we still don't have a standardized reporting, really transparent reporting uh, that can enable incremental progress. And I think it's because everything's been black and white. We've got to stop everything. And, and actually what we're seeing is, is you know, we're seeing progress, uh, incremental progress, and how can we actually track that? more clearly, how can we bring much more transparency? And some of the leading companies you know, are doing that. Uh, there's there are many other companies, particularly in non-North American, non-European markets that, uh, that really aren't, uh, aren't tracking nearly as much as they need to yet. And I, I think there's a much broader awakening from the corporate community that's going to be critical here
3: on well, the finance side, I'd love to dig in just a, a bit more. And, you know, first question is just why Why do you think natural climate solutions have been so underinvested compared to other parts of the climate space? Um, and then you mentioned, you know, a little bit earlier in our conversation viewing carbon finance as an enabler. i um, curious, you know, how you are seeing the possibility for carbon credits to actually change the game and, and maybe on the flip side, what the limitations are? Hmm.
2: So, I mean, there's a very simple answer why we haven't seen more investment in NCS, right? It's really complicated and we don't have assets that, that uh, you know, the financial sector can really get behind. And so, you know, carbon markets is seen as sort of one of the ways that we're, we're going to shift this. And so I am an advocate for carbon markets. I believe carbon can send a signal. I think the danger is viewing carbon and uh, and carbon finance as the panacea that's going to solve all of this versus carbon markets as an enabler and carbon finance as an enabler for some of the shifts and the changes that we want to see. So that's, that's what worries me. And I think there's some financial institutions just waiting around and looking at, oh, now the carbon market's going to come along. We've had the Carney Task Force report and a whole bunch of financial institutions around that. And suddenly we're going to make the same mistakes that we made 15, 20 years ago with Carbon Markets 1.0 of, of thinking, oh, this is now going to solve everything. And, it, and it, really, it really doesn't. And it belies so much of the complexity and the challenge that, that, that we are going to need to deal with. Uh, In the months and the years ahead, there are billions of dollars invested in real assets, in agricultural land, in forestry, and then monies that are invested into agriculture companies and into supply chain companies and into some of the tech companies that work in this space. And it's those investments and understanding if they got a positive impact that I think we really need to put more time and energy and attention into how we scale those so that when we are making an investment into a forestry uh, company or into a Timo uh, or into a, a real estate asset, then are we really thinking about the environmental impact of that investment? Because that's again, how we're going to make the biggest shifts versus thinking, oh, let's scale a new carbon opportunity and that's going to suddenly create all the incentives. So there's a much more complicated answer than that. And once again, I'm giving you a both and answer. But my one fear for natural climate solutions is a sense that oh, carbon markets are coming and carbon markets is going to solve the whole thing. It's one part of what we need to solve for. And if we only focus on that we're gonna end up with some very perverse uh, and unintended outcomes.
0: Speaking of the carbon markets, part of the answer, I mean, there's been so much exciting work in the lead up to COP26 this year, which I think will be a a seminal COP um, um, among them. Um, Could you talk a little bit about how you've been involved on on Carney's task force and what you you specifically hope will come out of COP26 for natural climate solutions and carbon markets?
2: So one of the really exciting things for me about COP26 is that the UK government is putting Nature uh, and Nature-Based Solutions as one of its five presidential campaigns and and its sort of real world economy campaigns to complement the the critical work of the negotiations themselves. Uh, Within the Nature campaign. There are several strands of that activity. One is on uh, a dialogue between the Global North and the Global South on forest agriculture and the commodity trade, and the the TFA is actively supporting that dialogue. Uh, I've actually just come out with a ministerial roundtable talking about how some of these issues uh, will get resolved between forest countries and consumer countries really, really important and the, the level of conversation, the level of listening is really encouraging. There's also work around sustainable agriculture and, and looking at the appetite for shifting agricultural subsidies. And I hope these two components are brought into the G7 summit that will be in uh, June, also hosted by the UK this year. Um, There is then a carbon markets component. And the visible part of that has been the the Carney Task Force for Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets. The UK has also just launched a voluntary carbon markets initiative, looking at how we can bring scale and integrity on both the demand side and the supply side into the discussion. And so that is exciting. That's got to sit alongside the very important issues of negotiating Article 6. Uh, of the Paris Agreement that also will then set out the rules for how and where countries can trade carbon and all sorts of uh, complex but important issues like corresponding adjustments will get resolved through that. So we are actively involved working on the carbon market discussions. We've been an observer and participant in the Carney Task Force uh, through our Nature Net Zero work, and we'll continue to do that, continue to support that But again, it's one component of what the UK is trying to achieve overall at COP26. And our biggest aspiration is to be supporting that. I think one other thing we're going to see is very significant private sector uh, investment and commitment into jurisdictional scale RED, REDD, that I think also offers or sends the right signal to some of these forest countries about long-term incentives for their optimized land use overall.
3: All right, as we move toward a close, one of the questions that we ask all of our guests is, if you had a magic wand, what would you change to scale natural climate solutions in 30 seconds or less?
2: My magic wand would be a a scalable way of supporting uh, the farm, putting the farmers right into the middle of this discussion so we can find ways of incentivizing them to make the changes we need to make.
0: That's great. And for our listeners, who do you think is doing some of the most exciting work to scale natural climate solutions today? And you are allowed to say someone you currently work for. (laughs)
2: And the wonderful thing about natural climate solutions is it's sort of you know, a few years ago it was uh, it was very much a sort of niche and, and forgotten area as we discussed in fact at the the global climate action summit in san francisco in 2018 we had a whole campaign that was termed the forgotten solution it was fantastic it got all sorts of great traction it was where we launched nature for climate The wonderful thing now is so many people are engaged. So, you know, I can point to corporates doing great stuff in their supply chains on restoration. I can talk to the innovators that are coming through in our Uplink Challenge. Uh, I can talk to investors starting to really push governments around deforestation. There's so many great things happening. It gives me real hope that actually we really can make a difference. And there's lots of complexity to still resolve, but I'm really excited to see where it all goes.
1: Well, on that note, Justin, thanks so much for joining us and bringing us all this hope. Uh, I hope our listeners also leave feeling energized and excited about the potential and the future of this space. Um, We'll end with our lightning round of questions. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions in rapid succession, answer in 30 seconds or less. Favorite carbon sink?
2: The Amazon forest.
1: Favorite book you read this year?
2: Overstory by Richard Powers.
1: Favorite COVID quarantine activity?
2: Spending so much time in my local landscape and getting to know every nook and cranny of the woods and the hills where I live.
1: And where is that? Is that in the UK? That is
2: in the Thames Valley of the UK, beautiful rolling Mm -hmm. English countryside.
1: Beautiful. What keeps you up at night?
2: Running out of time.
1: Mm. What are you looking forward to most in 2021?
2: Mm, Getting back together in person and being able to hug people.
1: (laughs) Yes, that sounds so nice. (laughs) I think we can (laughs) relate. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thanks so much, Justin, for joining us today. That was great. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com to see this episode's show notes, explore resources and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.